0: Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, will you? The book of Colossians. Stacy London and Clinton Kelly are the fashion experts who run the show What Not to Wear. How many of you have seen the show What Not to Wear? The idea is basically to get into your closet and throw out the clothes that don't fit or are not complimentary, and then they give you several thousand dollars to go and buy a new wardrobe according to, you know, the parameters that they have given you. And the end of the show is how this individual has been transformed. There's a physical transformation as they now wear clothes that are what to wear. Now, there's another kind of transformation that takes place for us on the inside of a person. The Bible says this, that therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Chrysostom, who was one of the early great church, uh, church fathers, said that when animals went on Noah's ark, they went out the same way that they came in. The crow came in a crow and left a crow. The fox came in a fox, and left as a fox. The porcupine came in, and left steel with his living arrows. And there was no substantive change to the animals. But then he said this, Chrysostom said, those who enter into Jesus Christ, who is our ark of salvation, they go in one thing, and they come out, Something else. Totally transformed. And what Colossians 3 verses 12 through 14 does for us, it gives some definition as to what that transformation looks like. Let's stand as we take a look at our passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Father, we ask that as we gather together and as we consider your word, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to transform us, that there would be a supernatural activity in our own hearts as we humble ourselves, as we're honest with ourselves, as your Holy Spirit takes your word, applies it to our hearts, may there be change, and may you be honored and glorified, and may the finished product look like Jesus, this we pray in his precious name, amen. You may be seated. Our passage today describes what life transformation looks like, and we spent some time talking about what the old life looks like in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 9. And now we move to this new life in Christ where Paul provides some specific virtues that ought to be in place. And he he says it in a way that he wants us to wear these virtues as if it's putting on some clothes. Now, it may occur to some that as we read a passage like we just read, that you might think that these characteristics are not evident in your life. And I would say this, that there's a big difference between something not being evident at all in our lives and something in which we're in a season in which we're experiencing some disobedience. There's a difference in those things. But know this. That when Christ enters a life, change will take place in our attitudes and behaviors. Can we agree with that? There has to be change in our attitudes and behaviors. Now, there's no way that I could put a numerical value on that. I could put a percentage on it. But just to say that there's no way that Christ can transform somebody, make them a new person, and that not be noticeable. I love what Paul said in Philippians 1. He said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work, he says, will complete it. It's a way of saying, "Is going to finish the job. Christ is going to do that. He finishes what he starts. There's going to be some changes. Now, for the true believer who maybe has some doubts about their salvation, let, let me just offer a couple things to consider. Consider your genuine conversion to Christ, that moment when you trusted Christ. Consider the biblical promises where God enters into a a covenant with his people uh, through the faith transaction when we trust Christ. Consider a quick inventory of the fruit that has been produced in your life in the past. And these are used to dispel any of those doubts about our salvation. You know, a child may doubt that they are really a part of their parents or that their parents love them, whether it's by birth or through adoption. Uh, My wife tells a story that as a child she would put baby powder on her face because she was darker than her siblings and wondered if she even belonged in the family and wanted to, you know, whiten up her skin so that she could be loved Or accepted. Not that she didn't have that, but we all go through those insecurities as a child. How are those dispelled? Well, a child uh, moves in a relationship with their parent, the parent reassures them, the parent loves them, and then their soul is quieted. In a similar way, the true believer can experience communion with God. Then corresponding to that, there's fruit of his work in our life. Verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved. Paul says we're to put on certain characteristics. Like clothes, our life is to exhibit certain virtues. Even the Old Testament uses this kind of language. For instance, we see in Isaiah sixty-one ten, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And then Job said, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Now it's not that in our own power we exhibit these virtues, you know, by the, by the force of our commitment. It's not that but rather that we become so possessed with Christ, so possessed with the mind of Christ in thought, feeling, and action that he reveals his life through us. That's why earlier in the passage, Paul talked about having the, the knowledge, being renewed in the knowledge of Christ, have that front and center. So what we're talking about here is an inward divine work of Christ that expresses itself outwardly. Now, we do well to notice that when Paul uses these words, God's chosen, holy, and beloved, he chose phrases that were used of the Jews in the Old Testament. Every one of those. And particularly, God's chosen. The Jew took pride in this, that they were chosen of God. But Remember the context in which Paul is writing this now in Colossians, that the Judaizers are here. These are ones who trumpet up all this need to follow these, they prescribe to these Jewish customs that you have to follow if you expect to be loved by God and want to be counted as one of the chosen. And so the Judaizers did not think that these Gentile Colossian Christians were elect of God or chosen by God. They would have to observe Jewish customs and decrees. And doesn't that remind us of some of our own experiences, perhaps in church life, where you had to abide by a certain cultural, subcultural Christian code in order to be in the club? Not too different. So Paul is seeking to get the Colossians to see themselves to accept god's estimation of themselves to see themselves as god would instead of through the eyes of the judaizers now we read this wonderful passage in deuteronomy that Communicates the same idea in Deuteronomy 7 when it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Isn't that great? God chose out of his goodwill to be in relationship to his people. It wasn't because, you know, they, uh, they prescribed to these decrees first. It, it wasn't because, you know, they got their life in order and then God started loving them. It wasn't any of that. God chose to love them. Read through Ephesians 1, and it communicates the same idea of God predestining us to, God choosing us. God initiates the relationship. That's what all that means. It's a wonderful truth. And that's why we can agree with Paul in Romans 8 when it says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. A great truth. All right, well, let's get to the words. God's chosen and now holy. Holy. He calls the Colossians holy. It means they are set apart. They are dedicated to God for his use, just like we dedicated these babies for their use. Now, that's not salvation for the babies, but the parents are, in a a similar way, dedicating these babies, and when we come to Christ, we are dedicated to God for his use. Now, wouldn't it be weird that, at a marriage, when a husband and wife say their vows, they dedicate, they separate themselves. In that sense, they're holy for each other, set apart for each other's use. Wouldn't it be weird if after the vows are said, the groom takes off with the maid of honor? That would be rather odd, okay? All right? It's just as horrible, listen, it's just as horrible for a Christian to go off into the world and let their flesh run the show and basically they leave their covenant commitment to Christ in the dust. As believers, we are already holy, set apart for God, for his use. That's our name. That is our identity. The question is, are we living in light of our reality of Christ in us? Are we living in light of the reality of being a holy, set-apart people. Put that on, Paul is saying. We're also beloved. Now, we all know, hopefully, what it's like to be loved by someone, right? Perhaps it was a grandparent or a parent. I had the blessing of having two sets of grandparents and parents who exhibited love to my brother and I. It may be a spouse or a friend But as you recount people in your life, hopefully you have at least two or three people that you knew without a shadow of a doubt, they really loved you. Now, how did that make you feel? Knowing, being in the presence of somebody who you know loves you. How do they act towards you? they, They show kindness towards you. They value you. Think about all the, all the strength and the encouragement that you get when you are in their presence. Think of that. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's a life-giving experience. Just to have two or three friends like that, right? Now think of God's love for us that is so much richer, so much deeper than what any human can give us. His love is completely unconditional. In other words, it is not dependent on our merit. We don't deserve it, but he still graciously loves us. It's absolutely amazing. Here's one thing you can count on in human relationships. You know what that is? Disappointment. Right? It doesn't matter what sphere you are talking about, you will be disappointed. When a conflict occurs... You thought this person loved you. You thought this person cared for you. But now you feel like they have left you. Now you feel like they drop you. Now you feel like they don't want to have anything to do with you. And what that does for a lot of people is they say, you know what? I'm never going to enter into that again. I am never going to get married again. I'm never going to get close to somebody again. I'm never going to get in ministry again or be a pastor again. I, I had a pastor, and I loved this guy. But he told me he's a pastor of a couple thousand people in his church. And he said to me, Kevin, this was before I got in ministry, One piece of advice I got for you, I go, what's that? He said, don't get close to anybody. I go, what? Don't get too close to anybody because you're just going to get hurt. That was his premium advice to me before I got into ministry. And I'm like, wow, you know what? I think I'll throw that one away. Uh, Because I just, I didn't even buy into it then. But that was a man who was hurt. And he explained the story of all the ways that he had been hurt. And I get that. But listen, because I have a relationship with God and my heart is cared for, and 1 John 4.19 says what? We love because he first loved us. You know what that means? That means that God gives me strength to love and to operate and to relate, even though I may not get it in, in relationships. And here's the number one thing that splits relationships apart, whether it's marriage, church, or whatever. We don't know what to do with the unmet needs. We don't know what to do with the disappointment because we all have it. But listen, outside of Christ, all you have is trying to, you know, get things right with the person. If they aren't, then you're stuck. But with God, there's unconditional love. There is security. There is safety. And he's the one that provides what I need to stay in the game. Even though you may not feel your needs are getting met, I can still love. Without that, It's just you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But if somebody quits scratching, then what do you got left? God provides the strength. We choose to love because God gives us the strength with his love. His love is, is a constant kiss of grace that can keep us going no matter what. You are beloved. Oh, listen to that. You are beloved. As a believer in Jesus Christ, that is the truth. That is reality. You are God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Turn to the person next to you and say, I am God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Do that now. And now tell them you are God's chosen one. Holy and beloved. And please do not add, and you irritate me, all right? <laughs> Paul now turns to specific ways that this holiness, being elected, being loved by God, influences our lives. But I want, I want us to notice something before we get into the specific characteristic. The context of these elements, check this out. The context of these elements is within a believing community. It's within a family. And he talks about this later. We can say it this way, that our personal salvation is always embodied in our public relationships. Now, we like to think, I can separate this out. How tempting it is to think that these virtues would be much easier to just practice alone, right? But that's impossible. How much easier is it to think about compassion than to express it to others, Right? I mean, how much easier is it to be kind when we are away from the people who hurt us, right? (laughs) right. I mean, it would be far easier to put on humility and gentleness if we're not being bothered or irritated by somebody. But listen, that is not the way we grow. That is not the way we mature. The Christian life is not in a test tube, but the Christian life is in family conflict, It's in community issues. It's in church problems. It's within work struggles. The very things that some of us think keep us from practicing these virtues is the very thing that makes them possible within the conflict, within the issues, within the problems. Think about it. There's no way to really practice patience without conflict. There's no compassion without needs. When we choose to flee the problems, and we do this all the time, don't we? When we choose to flee the problems, instead of working through them, we short-circuit the growth that God wants to give. Maybe what we need to do is just embrace this mess that we call community, the family, the church, and others around us, and then we can just watch God do his best work. Well, let's look at the first virtue. He says, a compassionate heart. Now, the King James has an interesting translation of this, the old King James, where it literally calls it the bowels of mercy. Now, there's a word picture, all right? The word literally refers to the stomach or entrails, all right? And it was a way of saying that this part of our new life in Christ, it's about having a deep gut-level feeling of sympathy towards others. Now, when Jesus and the New Testament writers came along, understand that compassion was not necessarily a culturally accepted notion. I mean, when people were sick or, or maimed or mentally challenged, there were little or no provisions made for them. People were indifferent to the hurt of others. And so along comes Jesus, and I mean, he starts introducing a brand-new game: compassion. Now, compassion is more than feeling sorry for someone. Compassion joins the feeling of sympathy with action. I can feel sorry for you and do nothing about it. I can feel pity. But listen, feeling sorry for you or, 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 or for somebody's pain is not compassion. When we are moved by somebody else's pain... We feel their situation so deeply that we express it in some kind of practical, outward action. That is compassion. Compassion is never void of the action. Now, what does that mean? How do you do do that? I like what John Perkins, who's an African-American, and in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, Tells about a time of some really dark, extended discouragement that he was experiencing. One, he was ill. And secondly, he was thinking about seriously giving up in the whole civil rights era. And then he wrote this about a woman who showed him compassion. He says this. Dr. Roberts was one of the few white persons I had contact with at that time. And she, well, she met me on the level of my humanity and not just on the theological level preferred by so many church folks. I love that. She met me on a human level and not on a theological level. He's saying that this woman treated him like a human being Regardless of his theology, regardless of his color, regardless of his politics, regardless of sexual proclivity. All these things that we sometimes put as as qualifications before I'm going to express compassion. There is no other qualification needed other than being human. People do not have to follow our moral code our politics or our faith even to be a recipient of compassion. Think of this. Think of the PR problem much of the church has because of the lack of compassion with, for instance, the gay community. We think somehow, some way, to show compassion is to, is to approve of the lifestyle. I don't know Why we make such a connection. But we're just showing compassion because somebody's a human being. And you love them as such and you show them respect as such. And we get on our high horse. It might be a person who's doing something else wrong that we deem as wrong that doesn't fit in our moral code. But you show compassion. It was something that was completely demonstrated in the life of Jesus. But it's something we need to think about whether we're putting on compassion. You know what, if you have no real friends of a different political persuasion, no one from a different faith, or maybe even with an atheist that's a friend, no one who's a friend from a different sexual proclivity, No friends from a different world view. Perhaps you need to take a real close look if your compassion faucet has been shut off. And you need to begin to look at people once again as human beings and not worry about whether they're qualified. Just think of the pride and arrogance in such a statement as if somebody has to be qualified. The great British... Journalist Malcolm Muggeridge interviewed Mother Teresa. She said this when she was asked about what people really need. Mother Teresa, it's not very often things they need. What they need much more is what we offer them. In these 20 years of working amongst the people, I have come more and more to realize that it is being Unwanted. That is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. Wow. May it be said of us in this room that in the contact that we have with other people, they always know that they're wanted, that they're valued as human beings. I mean, how can we do any other? And yet we want to make sure we set the record straight. We want to make sure this person gets the what for because by God, they need to hear the truth. Compassion will go a long way. They really can't hear you speaking anyway because you're yelling. They really can't hear you anyway because it's obvious to them you don't give a crap. We have to care first. When we express compassion, then maybe they might ask for some advice. You know, listen, I'm a pastor. My wife says I should have been a lawyer. That was not a compliment, all right? I like to give my opinion. Compassion is something supernatural that happens in us, and I have learned that I need to just first let people know that I care and listen and treat them with just basic respect if they want my advice, pretty much you got to ask for it. I try to shut my mouth as much as possible. But I like that I can preach because I can just get it all out. All right, all right? Okay. Jesus perfectly modeled this, right? This compassion. and It's the kind of compassion that Mother Teresa and John Perkins spoke about. Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem in Luke 1941, and he was so moved with compassion. Remember what he did? He wept. He wept. It didn't stop there. In Matthew nine thirty six, we see again that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a shepherd without a sheep. You know what? He didn't leave it there. What did he do? He gave his life as a ransom for many. The very people that rejected him, he gave his life for them. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was moved with compassion, and he acted. He did something. He didn't just feel sorry for them. It came out in practical ways. Again, in Matthew fourteen fourteen, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Luke 7, 13, when a woman's son died, he felt compassion for her. And he said, do not weep. And what did he do? He rose her son from the dead. In, in Matthew 15, 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days, have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. He fed them. Real compassion is always moved to act. As a church, when we see needs and God moves us to show compassion, we act. Can we meet every need? Of course not. We can't do that as a church. You can't do that as an individual. God gives us wisdom in how we move, but we do something. We act. It's the heart of the Christian to live in light of their new life in Christ, to show compassion. You know what? It's the heart of the life groups who begin today to know the needs of those in your group and to act to move to meet those. It's the heart of our church as we view our community and we respond in practical ways. And this weekend, it's good to recognize, it was also the heart of those during 9-11. When they saw need, and here's a story that maybe you didn't hear before about how people were moved with compassion. Check this out.